Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Larry Mishkin from the Hogan Law Group, and we're welcoming you all to our Deadhead and Cannabis podcast. Uh, I'm once again joined today, as always, by my good friend and world-class cannabis accountant, uh, Jim Marty. Jim, how are you doing? Very good. It's a beautiful day here in Colorado. It's 90s, low 90s, blue sky. Just a perfect yeah. summer day. So, Same here. So that's all yeah, good. Join you. Welcome, everybody, to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Now we're having a great summer here between a lot of cannabis coming online in various states. Um, great finish to the Dead & Company summer tour. Fish is cooking. Yeah, they Fish are. is just playing really, really well. We'll talk about that. And Sure. Uh, and we got a little, uh, I think, so, uh, on our list of uh, Grateful Dead uh, band members, we're, we're finally up to Jerry. So... Uh, uh, we all have, uh, I'm sure, something good to say about that as well, too. One of the issues, Jim, that's been coming across my desk a lot and that I've been looking at, it really all kind of makes me laugh, but it gives me some concern at the same time as this. You know, we all know that the 2018 Farm Bill signed by President Trump in December declared that hemp and CBD are not controlled substances. That's wonderful news for everybody. The federal government says that they're no longer illegal on a federal level. And everybody's excited, and this is really supposed to open the floodgates, subject to states kind of getting their acts together and figuring out how they're going to do it. But lo and behold, just a few days later, we were all kind of surprised that the head of the FDA stepped out and made an interesting pronouncement, which was, well, now that hemp and CBD have been declared legal, they're no longer law enforcement priorities. They now fall under regulatory oversight, and that's us. And since we now have oversight over CBD, we hereby declare that we have not yet made a determination that CBD is a safe food additive for purposes of being added into food products. So any type of edible with CBD, they're saying, shouldn't be sold. They're, they're not saying it can't be sold, right? They're saying it shouldn't be sold or they're not approving it because they've never made a determination as to whether CBD is safe and they've never been able to do it up to this point because it's been illegal. So, right. you know, for my client, right. I, I don't know if you're if you're seeing it out there, but in Illinois, people who sell CBD food products have been warned by the state that they need to start making lists of what they're selling, and the state reserves the right to pull it. And in other states, they have gone and, and pulled out CBD food products. Have you guys seen that at all in Colorado? No. Colorado has a great environment for growing hemp, and most of the hemp that's grown is extracted into oil. So we've had four or five years of experience basically since the 2014 farm bill and so basically there's two places that hemp and CBD are regulated in Colorado now, one is as it's grown it's under our Department of Agriculture all you need is a $500 permit and you don't have the extensive regulatory process that high THC marijuana does and then once the plant is harvested and the oil is extracted, falls under our Department of Health. And in the case of the Department of Ag, they just test for the 0.3% THC. And for the Department of Health, it's treated like any other food additive. It's just tested for contaminants, molds, and things like that. So, no, we're just clipping along in our clients. We have many, many CBD and hemp clients around the country. They're just going great guns. I mean, they're just extracting mm -hmm. and selling everything they can. Seems like I can't turn on a radio now without hearing a, a hemp commercial and what a wonderful product it is for sleeping and aches and pains. So the FDA, certainly that's at the federal level, is way behind. 
when I was in New Orleans uh, last month, there was a side-by-side THC conference and hemp conference at the New Orleans Convention Center put on by the MJ BizCon people. And uh, they had a lot of sessions. And the FDA is, they're only starting to formulate the question. They don't even have the an- they don't have the answers yet, as far as how they're going to regulate what they're going to regulate. One example I remember is one hemp company was very proud. I guess it was at the end of May the FDA had their first listening session on how they were going to regulate the industry, and one of the participants was very proud to say, "We don't sell any CBD products to anybody under 18 years old." And the, the questioner from the FDA asked the very simple question why you know why do you sell it to adults and not people under 18 what is making your decision and the person didn't really have a good answer but that's how at the very beginning of the regulatory process we are for CBD products now that said there seems to be a huge demand personally it doesn't do much for me to try many CBD products I have other people in my world that absolutely swear by it for their aches and pains and for sleeping, and they don't want to get high, and they they love the CBD tinctures. So, yeah, a lot going on. We're just starting to, as I said, uh, the FDA is starting to formulate the questions now. Uh, We'll have answers probably in the next year or two. Now, this is really interesting to me because basically, you know, what I hear the federal government saying is, we don't know that this is safe. We can't do it. We haven't tested it yet. But in fact, they have the largest testing lab in the world right here in the United States, right? Because people have been eating CBD edibles for an extended period of time. And the irony is that when hemp was believed to be illegal under federal law and the FDA wouldn't touch it, nobody died. Nobody had any problems. There wasn't any any issues like that. So it, it's kind of almost ironic that here we are now it's finally become legal and now the fda is stepping in and you know taking a position that seems a little bit strange in the context of this is not an unknown to you you know what you're dealing with let me ask you this jim i've heard talk that colorado was at least planning i don't know if they've successfully passed it yet or not but their own statute declaring that for purposes of the state of colorado uh, that cbd infused food products are considered safe. Are you aware of something like that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, as I said, since 2000, we've had three or four years of hemp and CBD products. And yes, our Department of Health, that's what they do, is they declare things safe or not. So for three or four years, our Department of Health has been testing CBD products. See, and so that's great. Now, in Illinois, I've been working here with people uh, in the CBD industry, and we're reaching out to Illinois legislators because we don't have anything similar in Illinois uh, where the state itself actually says, uh, don't worry, we've determined that for purposes of sale in this state, it's safe. And so obviously that's causing a, a hindrance in, in the uh, in the industry. And so we're, we're trying to take steps to at least solve it on the Illinois level. But I want to take this out to its logical conclusion and kind of follow the FDA's thought pattern here, because this is something that sometimes keeps me awake at night. What's going to happen one, two, five years from now, whenever it is, when the federal government declares that marijuana is no longer a controlled substance? Are we going to wake up the next morning with the FDA saying, okay, now that marijuana is legal, it falls under our regulatory jurisdiction, and we're making a determination that there has been no determination made that marijuana is a safe food additive, and therefore we cannot approve 
marijuana edible products, right? And then that would, in essence, require each state to kind of go back again. I don't think people have thought about that. The only thing keeping the FDA from saying that about any of these substances until they're legal, they don't have jurisdiction to do it. And, you know, I'm just wondering and and wondering what your thoughts are on whether that's something that, uh, you know, manufacturers of THC edibles ought to be looking at down the road. Certainly, yeah, certainly we've heard rumblings in that area that if marijuana did become legal at the federal level, which is the first government agency to knock on the door of a state-licensed marijuana business? Would it be alcohol and tobacco? Would it be the FDA? Would it be the IRS? Well, we've already had a lot of interaction with the IRS, but, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's, there's a lot of unknowns. I mean, a lot of people like the industry the way it is right now, and that's why a lot of people support Uh, Cory Gardner and Elizabeth Warren's states' rights bill, because it does keep marijuana illegal at the federal level, but allows a carve-out for the states to regulate as they see fit. And that would prevent um, marijuana products from crossing state lines, pretty much keep the industry the way it is now, except it would basically fix the banking problem and the um, Mm -hmm. deductibility of expenses outside of cost of goods sold. Now, when I was in Washington, D.C. back in May, I was told that that state's right bill wasn't going to see the light of day, and so far that's been true. The good news is I mm-hmm. guess there was a hearing on the Safe Banking Act in the last week or two. Yeah. So that one actually might sneak yeah. through because it's more of a public safety issue. I was just on the phone today with somebody from California, and there is no banking in California to speak of. People are running around with backpacks full of cash going to 10 different convenience stores to buy $10,000 worth of money orders to pay their bills. So the lack of access to banking is a public safety issue. And so maybe we will get some, see something come out of Congress this session on the Safe Banking Act. Let me ask you a question about that because, you know, you're a numbers guy and you understand this stuff better than I do. The way I understand that, that Safe Banking Act and even the States Act is that it's not changing the law nationwide. It's only changing the law in those states that have state-approved medical and or adult <laughs> use marijuana programs. So in those states, in essence, right. uh, under the, the, the States Act, it's, it's not considered a, a Schedule One. And then under the SAFE Act, banks can step in and, and they can provide the service as well. So how does this work? Because a bank, let's say, let's just throw out a bank, uh, Chase, for instance. Chase Bank services in every state in this country. In the state of Colorado, they have offices, and I can understand they say, okay, well, we're going to let you bank in Colorado, but when you put your money into a Chase Bank in Colorado, it's not actually going into a vault that's located in the basement of the bank in Colorado, right? It's going into Chase's, wherever they hold their money. So the, the money is still going through states that aren't approved. It's still going through the federal system. And then if you cross the border to the next Chase Bank in a state that doesn't have a marijuana program, it, it, I'm just wondering how something like that can work on a state-by-state basis when it's part of a whole national chain, if you understand my question. Yes, that is going to be a very good question. We kind of can see the format now with CBD when it's you know all of a sudden overnight basically made legal. Still a lot of questions and conundrums. But there's no slowing the industry down. They're just going to go right straight forward and do whatever they want, as they have done for decades in the cannabis industry. And the 
federal and state laws be damned, I guess, is what we're going to, I know we're seeing it now in CBD. We've had a CBD client um, in the southern part of Colorado. They've been shipping their product for three or four years to anywhere in the world that people wanted it. So it's definitely a case of the the barn door is open and the federal government's not going to have very much trying to shut it. The best they can do is to try to, to regulate it. And another interesting thing with this flood of CBD products is I haven't heard of anybody getting sick or going to an emergency room or having any issues taking a CBD product. Well, it's, it's, see, and, and that's exactly right. And and the idea is why do you, you can go pay and do all the federal studies you want, but all you have to do is check hospital records you know, across the country and find out how many people in the last 10 years have reported to a hospital. And ultimately, the issue has been the consumption of CBD. I can see where you might have a problem with CBD if somebody takes a CBD product and you know maybe it doesn't measure out right, and then they subsequently go in for a drug test and they fail the test because the level was too high. But that's a different issue. That that doesn't have to do with public safety and and those types of things that the FDA is is talking about here. Um, and we also know, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past, that in Israel they've been doing patient studies on CBD for over fifty years. So it, it, it's kind of almost disingenuous for the FDA to take this position. Uh, and, and to some degree, I just see it as trying to preserve their jurisdiction in all of this and say, hey, it's not enough that for the last 50 years, people around the world have been taking CBD and there hasn't been any known problems. We, the FDA, haven't made that determination yet. So we'll tell you when it's safe. And I think you're right. A lot of people are looking at them and shrugging their shoulders and saying, oh, well, you go about and do it however long that's going to take. But we all know from personal experience and you know, from having seen the market be so successful for so long, that we know what the answer is going to be. You guys just, you know, go ahead and do what you have to do to get there. So those are my thoughts, at least. So many other things to talk about today. You know, certainly here in Illinois, we're hopping and popping all over the place and all of that. But uh, while we still uh, have a few minutes here, there's a couple of things that I really wanted to, to quickly pivot to. And we can always come back to these other topics in our next show. The thing that we've been kind of doing is, you know, kind of going through the various positions of the Grateful Dead, and we finally made our way up to the top to Garcia. I want to talk about that, and at the end, I want to circle back around to the fish shows this last weekend in Alpine Valley, because not only were they pretty unique shows in their own right, but I think it makes an interesting counterpoint, you know, to what we all have to say about Garcia, and, you know, just taking it from the top, while we can all sit here and say that... uh Every member of the Grateful Dead serves a purpose, and every member of the Grateful Dead was, you know, kind of integral to the overall success of the band and the unique nature they had and the the music they made and and all of this. And I respect anybody else's opinion in the world, but for me, it all began with Garcia, and I was yeah. clearly drawn to the Grateful Dead by Garcia and his guitar playing and his style. And on any given night, I would have been just as happy to go see the Jerry Garcia band as I would be to go see the Grateful Dead. And it was his guitar solos and his musicianship and styles in which he played that really somehow struck a chord with me. And I assume quite a number of other deadheads out there in such a way that we were compelled to follow him. We were compelled to see what he was going to do next. You know, his, his life became fascinating. And unfortunately, that may have put a little extra pressure on him that resulted in some of the demons he was facing 
but I think it can't really be overstated. You know, you talk about the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger, that's great. And, you know, the U2 and Bono and, and all of that, but there's just something magical about Jerry, Captain Trips, and really just taking this band and, and, and taking it to levels that it may never have uh, been able to go with his musicianship and his, his, his background in music. You know, he was also uh, professionally trained. His father was a band leader and uh, I think Jerry originally met Bobby because uh, Bobby heard Jerry playing the banjo and wanted to come in and learn how to play, or maybe it was the guitar. But it was just something special in such a way that John Mayer, I think, does a really, really great job. And I think a lot of other people do, too. But the magic of the shows was you knew Jerry was going to hit a certain chord. You knew he was going to take it in a certain way. And waiting for those special moments and, and living through them is what, it, to me, is the, the primary difference between the Grateful Dead, and anything else that's come after. Sure. You know, where do you start? I guess we could start at the beginning with uh, Hunter and uh, <laughs> Jerry loading up uh, a tape recorder in uh, the back of a 1960-something Corvair and traveling around the country recording bluegrass and mountain music, and uh, yep. which became a pivotal part of the uh, Grateful Dead's style and also the repertoire of uh, songs like Dire Wolf and Don't Ease Me In, which are old blues songs mm-hmm. recorded in the 1920s. Right. And then the story I like to tell, you know, especially um, at my house where I have a lot of young people, college age, some of the history is that, you know, one of the reasons the Beatles quit touring was the sound was terrible. Uh, they sounded terrible. Paul, I remember Paul McCartney telling when they played one of their last shows at Shea Stadium, the music was broadcast through the baseball stadium's PA system. And it couldn't have sounded very good. Jerry and the Grateful Dead were the first ones to be able to, especially on Jerry's case, have a single guitar note fill an arena or a stadium or a music hall. Uh, right. You know, single, single notes that were crystal clear. And that was, of course, funded by uh, Stanley Owsley with his profits from the LSD sales. So it was a, yes. a cycle of psychedelics into the sound system, producing better and better sound, getting larger and larger audiences. And bring that all the way forward to John Mayer, who I just a couple weeks ago at Folsom Stadium in Boulder, and he was filling that uh, football stadium with single guitar notes. Uh, I was also getting to where, what I would always call, when I was lucky enough to see my 45 Grateful Dead shows, uh, Jerry's Virtuoso Guitar when he'll really do a, a, a super uh, rave up, if you will, um, specifically, say, during a morning dew. John Mayer was actually getting to that level, I thought, at the Folsom shows. They did a morning dew that he really brought down the house with. So, um, yeah, we could talk all day, as we've mentioned before, and take the song Althea, take out the word Althea, put in the word Garcia, and that song will start to make some sense. A lot more sense. Yeah, always well, enjoyed Jerry. Right. I remember my first Grateful Dead show. Uh, my girlfriend, now my wife of uh, almost 40 years, uh, got our, our first Grateful Dead tickets for Christmas of 78. And the show was in January of 79. And somehow we ended up, it was me and her and her brother Brian, who's still a great friend of mine, but my brother-in-law now, fifth row. And I was like making eye contact with Jerry during... Casey Jones. Um, I was lucky enough to see one of the very last, that was one of the very last Keith and Donna shows. 
in uh, January of 79. And then five months later, the Grateful Dead played our football stadium at UMass Amherst. And that was one of the oh. first Brett Midland shows. So those are my first two Grateful right. Dead shows. Well, that's very cool. So that's funny you say that. My very first Grateful Dead show was at the uh, Ventura County Fairgrounds just north of Los Angeles in 1982. And we went to the show, my buddy and I, and, you know, we walked in and we got pretty close up to the stage and they came out and, you know, there was this legend standing up in front of me and they tear into Bertha, which I didn't even know was Bertha at the time. And they're playing away and I'm thinking, well, this music sounds really good. And my buddy and all the guys around us are all laughing and they're cracking up. And I'm like, what's so funny? And I said, by the way, how come Jerry isn't singing? He forgot the words. Like, what? what? <laughs> he forgot the words. I said, who forgets the words to their own song? Jerry Garcia. But that's what made him so wonderful was that he was human. He wasn't automatic. He wasn't just a machine that was programmed night after night. You know, you, you could hear him play the same song three times on the same tour and it would not necessarily sound the same every time and you made a great point before Jim that I don't think people can truly appreciate enough and that's the uniqueness and the really the the, the very exposure and influences that Jerry had with music he did he had blues background and jug guitar or jug band music and country music and he played the banjo and, and he was able to take all of these different sounds and bring them in and incorporate them and make them part of this unique music machine that, with all due respect to Fish and all of the other jam bands who all do a marvelous, marvelous job, it's very hard to say that any of them, you know, even to this day, do it quite as well. To make a, uh, a slight little transition here over to Fish, I, I've had conversations with, uh, with my friends who have kids or, you know, my kids even, who are big, big fish heads. On uh, some of them who have seen fish, you know, 10, 15, uh, 20 years, but they weren't ever old enough to have seen Garcia. So to them, mm -hmm. and rightfully so, you know, that and company is a great experience, and I, I'm glad they get to experience it and they get to go out and do it. But when I talk to them sometimes and I say to them, look, John Mayer is great, but I, I have to tell you, John Mayer playing Althea as great as he does it doesn't move me the same way that it would move me when I heard Jerry play it. And they said, but, you know, look, you have to make do with what you've got. So finally I turned to them and I thought, this probably is the best way to say it. How would you feel for the next 10 years going to see Fish with John Mayer playing lead guitar instead of Trey? <laughs> <laughs> right? That's a very and good John Mayer's a great guitar that's a very player. Good way to put it. And, you know, and, and now, having said that and made that transition and why I think it's important, not just because... Fish just played three amazing shows here this past weekend. But, you know, Trey is basically the same age now that Jerry was when he died. And, you know, Trey was able to face it, look his demons in the face and clean up his act. And as a result, here he is at 54 or 55, playing stronger than ever, amazing shows that everybody's loving, you know, going deep into their back pages to pull out some amazing songs. And while I, I'm thrilled to see him doing it, I have to confess there's a little part of it that makes me sad that Jerry similarly wasn't able to face down those demons and how amazing it would have been if for the last 20 years, you know, we still had Jerry out there, you know, playing music and giving us memories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we call, we call him sober Trey now. And, uh, that's a good thing for all of us. And, um, well, looking if, forward to it. If, if this is another example of, uh, somebody who can fill an arena with a single guitar note. 
So go oh, ahead yeah. and tell us a little more, Larry, about the Alpine Valley shows. I heard they were great. Jim, they were they were really, really, really great. Now, you know, I'll, I'll tell anybody who listens, I, I like fish and I enjoy their music a lot. And I've really gotten to know a lot of it over the years. But I don't consider myself, you know, a true fish head in the way I am a deadhead. You know, I still go to shows and there's still songs they play and I'm not sure what they're playing or what the particular significance is for me. And it's almost kind of nice, you know. I just go on whatever they play. They play great and I have a great time listening to it. And the Friday night show you know, with just one tremendous song after another. We were in the pavilion of Alpine Valley, and, and again, if you've never had a chance to get out there, it, it's really a, a special, special place to hear live music. It's a beautiful pavilion. Uh, there aren't any bad seats in it, and they fill the sound there well, but the, the hill is really, uh, the lawn that goes up on the hill behind it is the real story, and the number of people they draw there, and all the fun and the activity and everything that's going on up there, and it's really fantastic. And they played a great show Friday night. We were all really, really happy. I got to hear a really good squirming coil, which I was thrilled about, and uh, you know some other great tunes. And Saturday night, it was a good show. I, I think everybody would say it probably wasn't the best show of the tour, but even even a show that's, that's not the best show of the tour is a good show. Now, we get to the Sunday night show, and I have to preface this by saying, and this is an important part of the story, I was not there on Sunday night. We had gone to J-Rad Thursday night, fish fish it was just too much and i couldn't uh, i had to work the next day and enough was enough so my kids were all up there friends were up there everybody was up there my wife and i stayed home and very soon learned that we were going to regret it as i don't know if you've seen the set list from that sunday night show but some of the songs they pulled out in alvino malcano for the first time in a few years which i have to tell you as a uh, somewhat less than i used to be observant jew to hear them play a song that is otherwise reserved for the holiest days of the year in you know the Jewish tradition is mind blowing. It would have been wonderful to have heard it live, but it's great. And then then this is where my you know my fish knowledge admittedly falters. They played a song called Olivia's Pool, which I'm not sure that I could identify for you if I just heard it. But it, you know significantly enough, it was the first time they had played it since 1997. So 600 and something shows according to the the, the web page. And then they, they pulled out a Nicholas and uh, they played Good Times, Bad Times and just one amazing song after another. My son was texting me. I can't believe you're not here. But before the show, I had said to him, my tradition, my history is if the dad or fish or any band like that is playing in my hometown and for our purposes, Alpine Valley is our hometown. And if I have a ticket, which I had a ticket, and if I don't go it's going to be the best show of the tour. And, and I, that plus the fact it was a Sunday night and everybody says, don't miss a Sunday night fish show. But the big moment came at the end. I'll be really quick here with this because I could talk all day. My son knows a group of people and somebody who was in the group wasn't at the show on Friday and Saturday. They were at a wedding in Milwaukee and they got to actually go meet Trey Friday night after the show because they went to the hotel where the band was staying. And the story was that he told Trey the, the band played contact on Sunday night when he and his girlfriend were there, he would propose to his girlfriend. And so this story was already kind of filtering around through the social media. And on Sunday night when my son was up there, in fact, it all went down. And Trey made the announcement from the stage and they played contact. And the couple was not very far away from where they were. And uh, there was a lot going on and everybody came running over to watch and to see what was happening. And to this day, I don't think anybody knows exactly what happened at that moment, but he looked like he gave her some kind of a box on the video that I saw, and they were hugging and kissing and dancing around, and Trey was playing Here Comes the Bride. And me, that's pretty freaking amazing. you know. And Trey's announcement to them was, I'm about to change your life. And he played the song, and I'm like, <laughs> who does that? Who does that kind of thing? It's, you have to be at a fish show for that. That's amazing. 
That's great. Well, we're certainly looking forward to our three shows on Labor Day weekend. Uh, I think um, I've only missed one or two shows in the 10 years they've been doing it. We take our RV down there on Friday morning, get set up for the weekend, and we don't move until uh, Monday. So one of the nice things about Dick's is that it has the camping there. So you take just a few steps after the show and you're back at your camper uh, getting a cold beer and staying up and singing and playing instruments all night. As we come to the end of this one, I want to thank the people who have been writing reviews of this podcast. If you like this podcast, please write us a review. I think we will have instructions on how to do that here next time. But I believe it's an Apple app where you can review these podcasts, so please do. And then I'll make a one last plug. Our son Jack, who's 21, is in a fish tribute band, and the, their name is the Kings nice. of Leon. So if you have a chance to check out the Kings of Leon, they've got some things up on Facebook. They've got a regular Thursday night gig at uh, Be On Key at 1700 Logan in Denver. And they're getting rave reviews as a fish tribute band. Awesome. And Jim, don't forget, this time next week, I'll be traveling out your way to see uh, Tedeschi Trucks at Red Rocks a week from Saturday night. So uh, uh, we may have to do our next show from the barn. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's try to do a show from the barn when you're in town. Absolutely. I, I forget the show. I just want to see the barn. <laughs> All right. Sounds good, everybody. Over and out. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.